Okay, everybody, we've got an awesome show for you today. Acquired's Ben Gilbert and David Rosenthal are on the program. We go super deep on what we're seeing in the venture capital market. We cover a bunch of the crypto VC stuff and how token investments should happen. We also break down some crazy stats from PitchBook's Q2 US Venture Monitor. We dive into Amazon and their incredible businesses. And it turns out Ben has been doing some J trading himself. And he tells me about two really interesting companies. And then I make a snap decision. Do I J trade live on the air with Ben Gilbert? Find out today on the show. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Embroker's Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. Dell for Startups provides key solutions for all your startup needs. A dedicated tech advisor will get to know your business goals and deliver customized solutions for rapid tech enablement with top business class PCs and accessories. Apply for Dell for Startups and get an additional 10% off all Dell Latitude products at dell.com slash twist. And Zapier is the easiest way to automate your work. See for yourself why teams at Airtable, Dropbox, HubSpot, Zendesk, and thousands of other companies use Zapier every day to automate their businesses. Try Zapier for free today at zapier.com slash twist. All right, so here we go. I love having the boys on to talk shop. And as you know, uh, they have a great podcast called Acquire. Go ahead and search for that. David is running Kindergarten Ventures, and I am an LP. That's right. David, where am I at? What's my moik? What's my uh, what's the IRR? Am I five x my cash on cash? Am I ten x cash on cash? Daddy needs a new Tesla. What do you got for me? <laughs> well, we raised the fund in um, Q one twenty twenty two, so Q one markups are not as as forthcoming as they were last year. But Wait a second i I was getting reports from my funds in twenty twenty one to twenty twenty two that they were up four x. Uh, of course, well, none of them liquidated any of it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So it's sort of David's telling you it's early days. It's It's only a quarter and a half in, you know, but uh, we, you probably got the email. We've got three SPVs open right now. So deals are happening. All right. Now, wait a second. SPVs are open, but you're not saying which one. So you're good. You didn't 506 see it. You're 506 B right now. I too have four or five SPVs open right now. These are special purpose vehicles. I, well, no, because then it would be 506C, right? We'd be publicly racing for those companies right. and they would have to then certify that everybody was accredited. But if you do it privately, so we can say that we do SPVs on a regular basis. You yep. just don't want to uncloak which ones they are. What has the reaction been to your first couple of SPVs there, given it's the summer, so people are busy, and given the market is a little scary right now? We had a little up and down and... Ukraine and $6 gas and scary inflation prints and Biden is asleep at the wheel, all this kind of stuff, making people pretty scared, <laughs> Taiwan. But yeah, so Taiwan how has the reaction crazy. been to SPVs with angels and LPs? They want to place bets or good. not? Uh, mm. Yes. Uh, now, part of that might be we launched them last week. And I feel mm. like you guys have been talking about this on All In. I feel like we've been bouncing around the bottom. I'm starting yep. to see signs of life. People are like, Hey, wait I a minute, I got to put some money public somewhere. public market buys this week. I mean, like public market buys months. this week. You're J-trading. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, I like that, coining that phrase, by the way. 
That's all Nick. That's all producer Nick. But uh, right, so what is, I want to go back to David, but let's define that term first. What is J trading? So J trading is the act of learning public market trading from your audience. So this is not investment advice. My goal with J trading is to learn. I have, I have a couple of goals, but number one is to become a top quartile, top 10% public market investor to really understand how to identify lasting companies with great products, great talent, the same way we do in the private markets. Now, why yep. do I want to do that? I believe that one informs the other and that to be that this is kind of like learning PLO if you're a Texas Hold'em player. You learn a mm. new poker game. It's different, but some things are the same. The ranking of the hands is the same, right? Okay, this is, you know, a full house. This is a flush. This is a straight. Okay, they have different values. But the frequency of them is different and there's a lot of nuance. So that's what I'm trying to do is, and if you look at Bill Gurley, he started as a public market analyst and then did private. If you look at Masayoshi San, and we'll talk about SoftBank today, he does publics, he does privates. So I believe, and now you look at Sequoia, uh, our boy Ruloff is now got the Sequoia fund and they're going to be managing public market equities. I think this is the future and I have struggled candidly, with when do I distribute these public shares that are coming in? I'm lucky enough to have Uber go public, Desktop Metal, Robinhood, a bunch of different things. And should I be selling before they go public in that mezzanine kind of round? Should I be selling when they hit a billion dollars, $10 billion? When should I be selling? When should I be liquidating? When should I be holding? Uh, and, you know, I have to, uh, you know, do that. And so as a goal, the other goal was to learn from the public maybe come up with some theories as to what might work and to just publicly do those and uh, learn from the audience in public as a goal i'm going to put a million or two yeah. million dollars into this and i'd like to 5x in 10 years so i set a very aggressive goal which is what i have done or well listen without making any future statements past statements <laughs> let's just say i've had funds that have been in the top 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 that's what you, you know, expect from your private market investing i would say my private market investing you know net 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 i'm hoping i'm a 5x cash on cash fund manager that's my aspiration hmm. and you know I, I have hit that so um that's my, those a, are all my um, goals combined. are you keeping a like publicly public portfolio anywhere yes if you go to jtrading.com uh yes. you can see oh, the uh, four uh, trades producer so, Nick, you're the best <laughs> j-a-y so trading or j yeah, j j Oh, getting right. the domain name was uh, was my chief of staff crash. Looks like a maybe here on a looks like a Notion page. So there are my four trades. I've made them in the last month. I'm putting the dates. I'm putting the amounts. Uh, I share them, but um, I did stitch awesome. fix. All right, I am oh. going to write a scraper after this to make sure that nothing ever gets removed from this table. And uh, uh, I, I, I talk about it on the pod. I've been making the trades live on the pod using Robinhood. So while uh, I'm doing it, I'll be like, "Hey, Molly, hold on a second, and then. The big tip off is I put my grandpa glasses on because Robinhood uses like a negative seven font size. They're like, oh yeah, we know that you're 23 years old. So we're going to make the font <laughs> size so small that you can't you read. Are you the oldest you, user you, on Robinhood? You could be buying Amazon or you could be buying American, you know, some. They're like, what do you mean you don't want leverage? leverage? Exactly. <laughs> That's always the funny part. I'm like, I'm putting like hundreds of thousands of dollars into this account. And they're like, would you like leverage? I'm like, no, no, let's pump the brakes there. <laughs> But um, so I'm making the trades live on the air. 
based on us talking about earnings reports, et cetera. And I, you know, I'm trying to find some some theories here. But you made some trades, public trades. Yep. Are you doing them publicly or not? I'm not, but I maybe I should. Maybe we should turn this into like an acquired Ooh. community thing, David, where everyone posts there and we they're you know Yeah, we should get bentrading.com, davidtrading.com. Go for it. Oh, I mean, follow the crap, We're live, dude. You can't say domains on the air. We gotta go Russian yeah, bios dummy. now. Oh yeah. Such <laughs> an idiot. You just now you cost you it's gonna cost you five grand for that domain. I know. It's dummy. brutal. All right. But anyway, so you're making some trades. Tell me what your recent trades were. Uh a, super boring stuff. I'm like Great. back like in boring. on big tech. So uh, okay, me too. Uh, can I? I think we can say things we're buying on air. There's no reason. Yeah, I mean, this is not advice, investment advice. advice. This is what you're yeah. buying. It's not investment advice, but you can say why you bought it after after you bought it. Yeah, you're not manipulating the market. You're saying your thesis of why you bought it. Uh, I mean, so unless I, you have inside information, which you should. In which case, I shouldn't <laughs> be buying anyway. Um, unless it's no, I, private companies when everything is based on information, <laughs> private information. So there you go. I bought more TSMC. I think it's the most important company oh. in the world. I think uh, the geopolitical volatility is creating uh, huh. price suppression on a business that is only doing better and more important than it's ever done. And uh, you you can accuse me after our episode of being a TSMC permable, but I, I think like it takes government scale effort to try to rival TSMC. And even if the government were to plow 50 to 100 billion over a 15 to 20 year period, you have a chance of being able to rival them. So I think it's like one of the most unbelievably protected moats, like literal, you know, ocean moat uh, around the, the company of all time. All right. So five years ago, trading at like 45 bucks in 30, 40 bucks in 2017, peaking uh, in 2021. Uh, about $136. I think that's when Pelosi sold her position. And then uh, <laughs> we got <laughs> togged all the way down to $77. And now we're at 85 bucks. Market cap, $421 billion. This obviously is uh, in Taiwan. It's Ta Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. So the geopolitical risk is making people nervous. It totally should. It is totally a possibility that... Um large kinetic military moves get made uh, uh, to that could wipe this company off the face of the earth. I mean, there's terrible things that could happen as collateral damage. I do think it is too important to everyone. It's almost like a Cold mm. War situation for anyone to 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 want to make a move. But I am not a geopolitical strategist. I am just comfortable with that risk in making this. So investment. mutually assured discretion, d destruction is like part of your thesis here is like for the world, we can't have TSMC get annihilated. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the thesis. I, I also am like a 10 to 20 TSM year old. Are TSM is the ticker? Yeah. TSM? Yes. Uh, on all this stuff. Like I, I didn't, uh, from all the stuff that I bought in 2019 to 2021, I sold a de minimis amount of it. And so I kind of look at everything as forever holds. And so to me, this is like a, I'm not sure what it will do in the next year, but do I think it will stay very important in the next decade? Totally. Which makes right, me the I most like boring it. trader of all time. Well, I... Two, am trading with a 10-year, find great companies, hold them, but I want them to outperform the market. And I do like some downside protection, right? Like this is not going anywhere kind of company. And uh, that's why I've been buying Amazon, Disney, took a little flyer with uh, Warner Brothers uh, Discovery because I like Zaslov and I have some thesis there. But TSM uh, seems like a very good bet. I like your bet on TSM. Anything else you're buying now? 
Well, so I've been looking at anything that was up north of like a 70 80x price to sales. And if it's come back to earth, then it becomes interesting to me. So like, uh, uh, for the first time, which is, is just very funny, considering the how bullish so many people were for so long, Shopify was a really interesting buying opportunity right now, or, or in the mm. last couple of weeks. And so I'm for the first time a Shopify shareholder, because I was kicking myself for the longest time that I wasn't. I think massive secular tailwind with empowering people to be their own e-commerce merchants. There will totally be an Amazon that eats an enormous amount of e-commerce. And then there will be the Shopify merchants that that have a gigantic mm. uh, amount of the rest. And I think that will continue for a long time. Do I think it will continue at the rate that it, it was during the pandemic? Probably not. But again, 10-year bet. Mm. But like, I just, just to give you a number on that, that their peak price to sales was 72x. And I think wow. this week, they're trading somewhere around an 8x. I mean, it's just a very interesting time to be looking at anything that was unbelievably speculative, and now is trading at or near fundamentals. I like both of these bets a lot. Um, I had not even considered, if I'm being totally honest, even though we talk about it all the time, TSM, but do you know what the price to sales ratio there is? And for people who don't know, price to sales is the price, the valuation of the company versus their sales. So I do. The they had a billion in sales. They're only seven X. Wow. Yeah, crazy. they they never got too crazy. I mean, their 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 highest was maybe twelve or thirteen X in in the madness. Got it. Look at Shopify. They were at a hundred and seventy six dollars. Was their high? Um, and they're now trading at 36.50 and the low is 29.72. I like that trade too. I'm going to quickly explain one of the crucial types of insurance that every founder of every startup needs to understand. It's called cyber insurance. It's a, you know, it's a little cyberpunk name. What it basically means is hacks. You got to be covered in case you get hacked. And in these crazy times, you want to be protected. So if you don't have business insurance, you have failed one of the first steps of being a great founder. And startups should look no further than in broker. This is the insurance company I use. Their technology will save you time and money. Their prices are up to 20% lower, and you get better coverage than the incumbents. You can go from sign up to quote and purchase in just 10 minutes. When you work with Embroker, you're not dealing with large, slow incumbents. No. Your sign up is going to take just days, not weeks, and the process is so transparent. There is no opaque pricing. Everything's easy breezy, lemon squeezy. I use it myself. A lot of my startups use it. And you can instantly buy custom built insurance for startups by going to imbroker.com slash twist. That's E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash twist. And when you're there, you're going to get an extra 10% off by using my code twist. Ben, I'm curious. Did you consider ASML versus TSMC or doing a blended bet on both of them? as lots of folks in the chat have been asking. Yes. It's, it's cool having this chat here as we go. I know it is. Uh, I am also a uh, longtime ASML holder, but I did not buy more this week. Mm, interesting. And huh. ASML, for folks who don't know, is um, the like they make the photolithography like $200 million plus per machine. Oh, wow. One of the very, very core components that go into modern semiconductor manufacturing and they're actually based in the netherlands spin out mm. of philips um dutch company back in the day and so people talk about asml and tsmc like very they're very jointly tied at the hip and intel actually uh, you know it's probably a decade ago made a strategic bet not to go with asml 
technology and it was a hundred percent the wrong bet and it was yeah. a big part of tsmc surpassing intel inside the chip industry this is like a very interesting rabbit hole but the everyone was really bullish on ultra like what is it uv ultraviolet photolithography the the extreme ultraviolet lithography and so a bunch of companies including intel funded ASML. They bought like a third of it or something mm. as a consortium of chip companies to kind of like further the development of this technology. And after four or five years, it wasn't bearing fruit. So Intel got out and sold its shares in ASML. And then uh, and it itself strategically moved away to use a different fapping process. And it ended up being that it just took five, six, seven years for it to become the the just a lot of R&D to become the future, basically. I've been looking to make some trades. Trade number one, we just did a J trade. J trade is in. J trade alert. Oh, wow. We're doing live J trades now, folks. Wait, this wasn't investment advice. This was not investment advice, but I took Jason it as did such. his own research. I did my real, own real research, time. and my research was, you're smart. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, uh, I just dropped 59 dimes. Uh, 700 shares of TSM are in. Thanks to our friends at Robinhood, not sponsoring this yet. Vlad, I don't know, maybe you want to sponsor. I was one of your early angels. I don't know, maybe sponsor the show. Uh <laughs> And then a second trade just came in. J Trade Alert. Oh. Wow. Oh, we bought a little shop, a little shoppy poo. Thousand what do you shares mean, what coming happened? in. And who bought these? I did. Ha, ha. No, anytime anybody mentions a ticker single, a symbol on the show and they're smiling, we just put a, bu- a buy one. Oh, right so that's computer our, vision based auto. Computer buy. vision so you just based do that on Robinhood on your phone. I just did it on Robinhood on my phone while we we're talking. And yeah, it settles a trade immediately. That's crazy. I don't care if somebody paid for my payment for order flow. I like getting a free trade. Wow. Wow. Uh, don't put I'm, this I'm on I'm me. I'm putting a million dollars, maybe two million into this do we, little public. Do we get some public. carry on that? Uh, no. Uh, but no, if it goes it, down, you'll be hearing from me. If it goes up, <laughs> I'll buy you guys some omakase. Can I share it? So here's, a, here's sort of a fun way for our friends. Uh, thanks to our friends at Bessemer who put this mm. together. If you go to cloudindex.bvp.com, for anybody wondering like, where can I get investment ideas in the, you know, yes, reasonably large SaaS world. So they create this pretty interesting thing called the cloud index. And it's very interesting yes. to look at the like, you can uh, very clearly see the run up and just getting absolutely smashed from emerging cloud companies recently, uh, notably still above the uh, a bunch of benchmarks from 2013 when it started. Um, but if you click the companies tab and you sort by EV to annualized revenue, uh, this gives you effectively a price to sales thing. And so you can look and see, okay, what companies are still trading in an incredible premium, your Snowflakes, mm. your Cloudflares, your GitLabs, your Atlassians, CrowdStrikes, and then you can see companies completely on the opposite side of the spectrum. And so if you're looking to do the thing that I did with Shopify, you can basically look and see, okay, who's trading at a pretty low multiple right now? And then mm. you look over at their growth rate, and if someone is still growing quickly, and yes. has high gross margins, that's an interesting place to then start your research and dig deeper on the company, read their financials and try to understand what are what's going on in this company that why is the market pricing it so low when at least at a very high level and you know, blunt instrument fundamentals seem solid. We're looking at Twilio this is a perfect example. They're trading at 3.4 times. Wow. Uh, is that the right number there? Yes, this is actually one that I was curious about that I have on my, my list. God, they've gotten crushed, destroyed, 
and, yeah. and, and their growth has meaningfully slowed. So there's part of it. That, I mean, uh, so much of this is about what's going to happen over the next 30 years with this company, which is why people massively over-index on what happened to growth in the last quarter or two, because if that trend of s- slowing growth continues, obviously you, your cash flows in the future don't look great for many, many years. But if it's a blip, then, you know, this is a, uh, or should I, I should say a blip in slow growth, then it could be an underpriced asset. Does the value of these companies take out their debt? Good question. I'm not sure how they compile yeah, this. So that's another thing I'm learning is like the amount of debt some of these companies have versus how much cash they have. So I was like, oh, Snap looks interesting right now. I really think Evan Spiegel. So when I'm a private market investor, I think about the team, you know, the founder, essentially, and the team around them. I think about the product. I think about the customers, right? If, I, if I'm really confident in the founders, I think it's a beautiful product and solves a real need in the world and delights people. And the customers, if they're really happy and they're spending money, great. That seems like a good bet to make in private markets. But when it's public, now you got the growth rate, you got debt, you got competition. I mean, you got a lot of mm-hmm. other things that can be super acute. And it turns out, I was like, oh, they got, they're sitting off $5 billion in cash or something. And then somebody was like, hey, dip where do you think they got the cash from? They got $5 billion in debt. I was like, so they drew down the cash. They've got cash in a bank account. They're accruing interest on the debt. I'm assuming very low interest. So that's good in an inflationary market, I guess. So I was like, oh, because I was like, what's the value of the company minus the cash and doing my little, you know, game there of like, hey, if you bought back all your shares at this price and used your treasury to buy your shares, then what's the actual value of the company? So that's what I would look at with these two is like, what's the debt load they're carrying? versus yeah. their cash position. This is why I think Robinhood's in a great position. They're sitting on so much cash. It's bonkers, like tons and tons of cash. But yeah, that is a good way to look at it. I do think there's like, a, I, saw, I heard somebody say, it was somebody famous was on CNBC. It might've been Howard Marks. And he was uh, talking about, you know, you have to look in places other people aren't looking if you want to find mm-hmm, that which out. Which is not if you this. Wanna... This is where everyone's looking. <laughs> well, is everybody looking at the dogs list or are they looking at the winners list? I would argue maybe people are looking at the winner's list and saying just what's the safest bet here? Yeah. And I've been looking at SPACs. So I've been thinking, okay, wait a second. The whole, all SPACs are now being painted with one brush. No product market They've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. There are totally good companies in there. There must be great companies in there. I know we have desktop metals in there. It's a great company. Even BuzzFeed, I was looking at, I was like trading at like 250, it had $250 million or $300 million valuation with three or 400 million in revenue. Now they were had the risk of ruin with, you know, not a lot of cash in the bank. So I was like, oh, this is a really scary company. I don't know if I want to catch the knife here. But I was like, you know, I always liked Open Door, Keith Raboy's mm-hmm. company. I always mm-hmm. liked that model. And people have been telling me open uh, is an interesting one to look at. I always like Joby. I think flying cars are going to be a thing. Yep. I think somebody's going to figure that out. I think Joby's getting murdered. And uh, now since I started J trading, the interesting thing is boys, I am getting a lot of inbound. It turns out people have positions. (laughs) And now they see me as a proxy. Uh, I I wasn't uh, sure about this dynamic, but I realized this is like a and you're like, no, I just pump Robinhood for myself. I'm not pumping exactly. anything for you. But this you. is like a pump kind of thing where now people are telling me, hey, you should get in on this. Here's the story. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> this is exactly what happens in private markets. Mm-hmm. We incubate a company. We angel invest in it. You know, kindergarten puts a little chippy poo in. Yep. Uh, you know, Ben maybe makes a little bit of a bigger bet. And then we're like, hey, Sequoia. Hey, Benchmark. Did you ever hear of this company? Really great founder. And we send that email. 
I'm getting those for public markets now. Huh. And so this is my little parallel, you know, how do these markets work in parallel? What are the themes that happen in both of them? And so looking who's, in a who's pile- pitching you? Is it hedge funds? Is randos, it? randos. Yeah. I had a CEO of a publicly traded company email oh, me today. that's not good. Oh. Not good. I, I, this, I don't know if this is a real email or not, but I'll read it on the air. Hey, Jason, I'm CEO of a publicly traded company, and I've put together a presentation for you to consider my company, beep, as a J-Trade. I'm Amazing. a longtime Twist supporter all the way to an all-in listener. Beep, class of beep. I took my company public last year in beep, foreign location. And we are listing in the US in beep. Here's the pitch video YouTube link. Hope this helps with the education process and becoming a public market investor. Thanks beep. Huh? That's actually that he, a, the, she or he did it did his research on you. And that's a that's a, you know, yeah. usually you get these pitches and they're just like, no, this was you know, the, they don't there's even, some of that stake here. So this is what I and yeah, he didn't he didn't put a discount code in there. So I'm not getting the shares at a discount. I don't know. Use the mm. promo code beep to get 20% <laughs> you off. Get <laughs> Actually, that's what long-term stock exchanges do, right? That's Eric Reese's company. Yeah, you that's buy right. buy a share for a year, you get a little discounty poo. Which actually, by the way, we did. Um, we just did this huge episode on Walmart. That was a key part of their strategy oh. was associates had could buy stock at like a 15% oh. discount. What? And um, Home Depot uh, adopted the same strategy too, and it was huge. Like, it became the model stories. for like all employee ESPP programs in Silicon Valley. We think about like, oh, employees, you know, get options. You just get gifted at those companies. They're like, you you can buy the stock. You you buy it with your own money. You get a discount though for buying it with your own money, and you can do it with pre tax dollars. And then you're like, you know, you, you've got skin in the game. Like, I uh, did you ever read I Love Capitalism by Ken Langone? He no, was the no, but it sounds right up my alley. Co-founder of the Home Depot. Really good book. Oh, um, yeah. I like it. Yeah. We got to do Home Depot at some point. Home Depot is fascinating to me. I wanted Uber to do this. Travis was going to do this with Uber. Airbnb wanted to do it. It just becomes incredibly complicated because you, you can't have that many shareholders on a, a cap table, you know, and you, you essentially become a public company. Remember that? Like Facebook yep. was yep. having yep. that yep. happen. and then those people can come to your offices and review your books under Delaware law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So That's a, these like, companies were public when they did it. Yeah, so when you're public, it's one thing. When you're private, it's another. I just got a new Dell laptop and it is awesome. This thing is a monster. It's high powered. I can play Windows video games that people have been telling me about because I'm into real-time strategy. I've got a giant monitor and it is so snappy. I'm looking at all Dell monitors here. I got my new Dell laptop. If you're a founder, you need Dell and you need to apply for Dell for startups. Here's why. You're going to get access to a team of expert IT advisors and these experts are going to give you custom solutions to make your tech stack world class. And they're going to give you access to capital for building out your tech stack. They're going to give you great discounts. And we love Dell. I give every employee who joins me here the beautiful 39-inch ultra-sharp curved monitor. And here at the ski house, I bought a monitor. So when Nick and Presh come up here to work, they have they can plug their Dell laptop in. Boom. Easy, breezy, lemon squeezy. They're up and running with a giant monitor. Here's your call to action. Apply for Dell for Startups today and get an additional 10% off all Dell Latitude laptops. Those are the award-winning ones that everybody loves. There's also the Alienware ones that I love. Just head to dell.com slash twist, D-E-L-L dot com slash twist. That's dell.com slash twist. Thank you to Dell and the team over there for making great products and supporting startups. I think this is the thing when we look at securities law uh, and we look at what's happening in crypto, 
I'm very happy uh, about the SEC finally engaging with the crypto. I want to know your opinions and saying, hey, we think these are securities and you need to clean this up. I too believe they're securities, but I do believe they could have, they need to give specific guidance uh, on this, maybe a little more upfront, as opposed to in the review mirror with enforcement. But also maybe we can think about this as a group and say, well, maybe employees should be a carve out to be able to buy shares in company and shouldn't count against the limit. They should be able to buy a certain class of shares that don't give them like complete information rights, like a major investor. And if as long as they buy under $5,000 a year or 10% of their salary, it's totally fine. So they can do up to 10% of their salary based on or their whatever their taxes were for the average of the last two years, they can do 10% of that 20% of that. So you don't have the risk of ruin there as much. But then Uber drivers, Airbnb drivers, I don't know, whatever company you and I invest in, we all invest in, they could offer that to people. So I'm doing this on inside.com. We did an equity crowdfunding on Republic, and we did one on Seedinvest. I have all those emails. There are a lot of our readers They're putting in $100, $200, $500 on average, we're going to put a top hat next to their names at inside.com on their profile pages. And oh, when you hover awesome. over the top hat, it's gonna say investor in inside.com. And I think that's kind of like the fun of it is that you could have, you know, public, you could, you could be have investors. What, what is your take, uh, David, on all this crypto stuff going down? I know you were crypto curious. I don't know if you ever consummated. Yeah. We actually just did, I think this is our most recent episode in the main yeah, acquired feed. With Anthony. We had this awesome interview with um, this guy, Anthony Gonzalez. He was my business school classmate at Stanford. He's a congressman. So he's in the house. He just has the most amazing, incredible story. Played in the NFL, played at Ohio State, played in the Ooh, NFL, got touchdowns from Peyton Manning, uh, got hurt and went to business school with me. Uh, started, was COO of a startup. Uh, and then ran for Congress and has been in Congress for the past few years as and a Republican. And the punchline is he's on the House Financial Services Committee yeah. regulating crypto. What? And Robin yes. Hood and like all of this. Yeah. Wow. So we spent this whole episode talking with him about this. And what is, what is his thought on it? Does he feel their securities? Does he feel the rules need to change rapidly from, you know, the yeah, 1920s? Yeah, interesting. We, we intentionally didn't get into the like, is it a security? Is it not discussion? Because there's so much gray area there. Mm. And so many different cryptocurrencies are for different purposes. And there's a lot of nuance. But the thing that we did get super explicit on is mm. Congress wants to start with stablecoin regulation and basically say, okay, we mm. understand stablecoins. We don't understand everything else yet, but we understand stablecoins. And we understand there's, there's asset-backed stablecoins. And then there's algorithmically stabilized stablecoins. And at least for the asset-backed ones, which is effectively like reserve banking, like, hey, we've got a yep. bunch of dollars in a, in a big warehouse somewhere. And so, um, you know, you, you, can, you can trust that this stablecoin, this USDC or something like it is actually backed by US dollars. They're, they're, they want to create the first clear set of regulations around stablecoins first. And the idea is, and I, he sort of quoted Bill Clinton here from the early internet days, first, do no harm. So we know that there's innovation happening. We don't want to squash it. We want to understand it. And then we want to figure out where there's grift. So we need to stop the grift. And then where people are not innovating fast enough because they're afraid they're going to go to jail and create a clear set of guidelines just around that. And they're starting with stable coins and going to move from there. Interesting. At the pace they're going, that's not going to be fast enough because they seem to take 10 years to make any decision <laughs> or 20. 
and they really need to get to more like a 10 month, 20 month cycle here. It can't be 10, 20 years because the industry um, is decided they're just going to YOLO and go for it. And this puts them in a, a dangerous position, does it not, David? It does, but I, I agree with his his uh, philosophy of, of first new do, do no harm. Like his point is that like the even though obviously there's grift going on and like obviously stuff is happening, like it would be more of a cost to the country and to innovation mm. in the long run if Congress were to take a heavy hand now. Wow. Then to take a light hand, which like was not what I expected to hear a you I know, didn't, sitting yeah, politician I gotta say. listen to this because they also have a lot of commissioners, right? Like people have different, uh, like we had Hester on this pod, right. like people have different positions and they have different amounts of influence. But he, uh, yeah, he made that point too, that like in yeah. Congress, that's, that's his view as one of the leading members of the House Financial Services Committee in Congress, but the executive branch in the White House has their own view and then the commissioners have their own view as well. It's fascinating. I, I'm really interested to see where they wind up with all this. Now, do you think they're securities, Ben? A lot of these feel like securities to me. I have no opinion on this because I oh. don't actually know enough about what okay. is a security, what's not. And and they is a dumb question here too. And not to say your question's dumb, but like yeah. cryptocurrency to call all cryptocurrencies the same thing is such a like sure. blunt instrument approach. Like mm. should a stable coin that's goal is not to appreciate in value be considered mm. a security if Bitcoin, which I hold purely as a store of value or perhaps an investment hoping it does appreciate, should those be treated the same way? Probably not, just because they mm. happen to run on the same rails. They're like totally different asset types. So I and ETH and Soul are a whole nother different class. So. Yeah, the, the, but the cost of no regulation or slow regulation, as you're pointing out, Jason, is that like the most innovative companies will get built elsewhere, which is bad for America. I mean, you get Sam Bankman Free building in Hong Kong and the Bahamas. And as Anthony points out, he was basically born on Stanford's campus. And somehow that happened outside of Silicon Valley. So it's about finding that medium. This Howey test is very interesting to me. That's the one, yeah. I guess, the, the Supreme Court established. Four-part test, an investment of money. Okay, check. That's all of it. <laughs> In a common enterprise. Okay, great. There's a bunch of people doing something with these uh, coins with the expectation of profit. You said right there, like, maybe it's a store of value for you, not a profit. I mean, you're happy to have Bitcoin make a profit, but maybe it's a store of value. And certainly stable coins are not with the expectation of profit. So you take out number three and to be derived from the work the efforts of others, well, that's pretty clear, you know, unless you're a developer in the ecosystem, or building with the actual tokens, you're probably riding on the backs of somebody else's effort, hopefully, that's where I think this is going to be a super problem. Now, venture capitalists clearing their positions uh, early, this is another controversial point. So go ahead, Ben, and, and alienate 20% of our colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so, maybe so 5%. I don't know, maybe I'm overstating. So what, what you're referring to is the fact that when venture investor, the common way to invest in crypto startups is to participate in something that looks like a safe and then have something that looks like a side letter give you the opportunity to have a pro rata proportion of tokens when they happen. And the sort of um, handshake agreement is we believe, we the company believe that this company over time becomes worthless and that the value is in the ecosystem. So that all the value that created by this company ecosystem accrues to token holders and not to equity shareholders. And maybe it's also to equity shareholders, but the real appreciation we believe will be in these tokens. And of course, that deal is cut before the tokens are even created. And so the, there's sort of a token pre-sale that then happens for those with the option to get tokens at a very low price who are the equity investors. Yep. Again, this is like not 
all of them, but this is fairly typical right now um, and was typical in the run-up. And so what you have is venture investors having the opportunity to invest at a very low price with a very low lockup period, call it one year, two year, if that. Crazy. Um, and uh, and then the ability to get liquid trading these tokens to the public for you know the the very first time that the public has the ability to offer them. So you can get kind of very rapid profits from participating in a you know early note or warrant or token presale and then cashing out when public has the ability to get it. As Ben describes it, David, how is this different than having Uber, Airbnb go public in year three as a private company and the VCs <laughs> and the angels liquidate their position? How is it different than that? Well, I think a fundamental difference is if you are going public, there is, as an as a equity, there is regulation about how you can do that, what ah. information you have to disclose, how trading can happen, all of, all of that. So there's Whereas, regulations involved in going public. Yeah. You know, I mean, at a minimum, like information, reporting, you know, mm -hmm. auditing, all of yep. these things. Those are pretty important, if you, I think, if you're going to have a publicly traded security now like is there a middle ground here probably i think we have gotten you know to bill Gurley's point for many years now like it's gotten so onerous to go public in the traditional markets that companies have you know delayed and delayed and delayed or just said like i'm not gonna do it and that's not good so i think there's probably a middle ground here between you know <laughs> the crypto world where like there's nothing and then the traditional equity markets where there's like so much you know it's millions of dollars to prepare to go public in years yeah. and what is the middle ground if you if you could ma wave a magic mm. wand if and i can so allow yeah. consumers to do what they want with their money but have some reasonable protections and disclosures what would it be i think what i would want the thing that feels wrong is early investors cashing out and and generating a huge return before a users of the service have generated value from using the service and b the company or dao or entity or token holders have managed to capture some of that value created for users by using the service and so i don't quite know how you would like legislate hey it can't be pre-product and pre-monetization so that's why you set some time-based cliff but that to me feels like spiritually what you're trying to to um, do is reward people who got in pre-product and pre-revenue and you know pre-profits, um, but then once those things are happening, allow them to cash out. And unfortunately, anything that's going well is always going to be trading at some ludicrously high multiple of value created or value captured. So you know you can always circumvent if if we were to put this into law, you could always circumvent it and be like, well, they they got their first dollar out and uh, people are valuing this thing at twenty billion dollars now, so great time to get out. So, so I don't know. It's yeah. I think that's why there's not regulation around this. Yeah, I think one thing that, to me at least, is important, like, is just the sunlight aspect of this. Like, whether a company needs to be profitable, like, I, I do think like that should be on individual people to make their own decisions about, like, do I want to invest in a, something highly speculative versus not. But I think one thing that is functions very well about the public markets is the reporting and access requirements, like. Quarterly audited financials are a requirement and quarterly earnings calls like anybody can listen in and hear the management team talk about the past quarter and get access to hearing from the horse's mouth every quarter. So if they had to do that and a lawyer had to be present, an accountant had to be present and the management team had to be present, they had to talk about their results. 
now there's a lot more skin in the game, isn't there? Then there's right. a board of directors. They've got skin in the game. They have to get insurance. There's like two or three apps that myself and my team cannot live without. One of those apps is the app to rule them all. The glue between all apps. It's called Zapier and it will make you happier. This is the simplest no-code way to connect your apps. You ever edit something like in a Google Sheet and you're like, wouldn't it be great if something that came into this Google Sheet would be sent to the Slack room or my pipe drive, I put somebody's client in there or I do a Zoom call and I want it to be saved to my Google Drive. All of these kind of crazy ideas, right? Well, you can do that with Zapier and anybody can do it. You don't need a developer. And this is what the no-code or low-code movement is all about. You can literally mock up and make a fully running business uh, without hiring developers today. In fact, I did it recently. Every time somebody edits in our database of companies we're meeting with for investment, it sends a little update to my Slack and tells me, hey, somebody added a new company where this company's going to its second round because I really care about when a company makes it to the second round with my team. So I can just get an alert boop, of those second rounds. That's the great magic of Zapier. It will make you so much happier. See for yourself why teams at Airtable, Dropbox, HubSpot, Zendesk, my companies, Inside and Launch, this week in startups love zapier try it today for free zapier.com slash twist just go to zapier.com slash twist and tell me about the recipes and all the different connections you make and maybe i'll talk about it here on the uh, ad read live on this week in startups which of course that's a lot of burden i mean going that's just why going public sucks i i was just thinking about i'm put a link in the in the chat here and and maybe producer nick can uh, can put it up I found in doing the research for our 1972, uh, for our Walmart episode, their 1972 annual report. And wow. this thing is like, I don't know, 10, 12 pages. And you look at an annual report right now and it's like 180 pages and it's mostly disclosures and saying the same thing over again. And it was such a delight to, to like read this report, which is like, here's what we think is important about the company. Here's what you should understand if you're investing Here's what went well. Here's what didn't. The pro, like the paragraphs are clearly written by Sam Walton, the CEO. It gives a five-year financial summary, like you're showing right now, and and no more information. Like it gives the yep. important stuff and yeah, nothing and by else. By the way, four of the pages are pictures and their contact information. So <laughs> it's actually net net seven pages. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think, think some more, much more than that though. I yeah, I, I have the easiest solution here. You you uh, drive a car, you get a license. Uh, you buy uh, a gun in a lot of states. You get a license. Uh, you drive a taxi, you get a taxi license. You want to be a real estate broker, you get a real estate license. You want to buy speculative assets, private market assets, you get a license. It's four hours for the course. It's a 50 question test. And then you put a cap on how much you can invest in private companies per year based on a percentage of your income. If the company doesn't check that information or maybe the company doesn't check that you're certified then it's on them if the company does it does check your life just like if you you know rent a car to somebody you don't get their driver's license like okay i'm renting you a car and i didn't get your driver's license that's on me if you crash the car then this crypto company could say you know hey hey uh non-accredited investor can you show me your you know it's putting your license number i'll check that you have a license great this is you boom uh and, and that's i think going to solve the entire problem and this is a problem you've thought about for some time, not just in the crypto front, but, you know, in, in helping to pioneer a lot of the crowdfunding stuff. So I like this is one thing when you throw out an idea, I take it very seriously because I think you, you've just analyzed this from a lot of angles. 
I have 10,000 people on the syndicate.com, you know, like, I've done 265 deals, I think now SPVs, I've done more than any individual angel, clearly. And like, I've been doing it for 10 years, couple of unicorns in there, like, I know what I'm doing in this regard. And really, it's people don't mind losing money. We've never had anybody upset about losing money. Uh, what people get upset about is like, I guess if they didn't get updates from the investors. So to your point, David, like I, I didn't even know what happened to my money. Like that's kind of a bummer. Mm -hmm. That's why we put in our contracts with our founders. Hey, we'll give monthly updates. We'll give quarterly updates, whatever, you know, the stage of the company we might ask for quarterly. If it's year five of the company, we might ask for monthly updates in the first two years and be happy if we get six, you know, get in every other month. You know, the average investment is I think six or seven K to this day. So the fallout is very small. And so that's another great thing, you know, if people are making small bets, and they are diversified, but of course, we can only allow accredited investors. Um, so I think test would be great. Because then if you think about the SEC's high ground, they'd be like, okay, you took the test, you answered the questions about diversification. And then you put every single dollar you have into a monkey ape NFT. <laughs> okay, were you diversified? No, okay. And then we in there we talk about intrinsic value earnings, revenue, uh, and debt and, and these basic things. Uh, what were the earnings of the NFT you bought? Oh, zero. Okay. Well, okay, what, what was the top line revenue? Okay, so zero. Okay, and you Okay, you basically but art has never been an income producing asset. Like what are the earnings of the Mona Lisa? Uh, like Picasso what? and Masterworks would disagree. Like these things have produced massive wealth for people, right? Art is a great asset class, in fact. Oh, they're sure, great, but, but not, not, not for the uh, NFTs producing. have been a terrible not, not, not for the dividends that they spit off every year. No, no, no. But okay, so and then, but you would have okay. When have these things traded before, right? So if it's a so great, there's your punch up. Okay, this is a non -gen revenue generating asset. Great point. Actually, I misunderstood your point. And so based on that, how long have these traded hands? How long have they been in existence? How many other Picassos are there in the world? You know, and you could have a whole series on how often have they traded per year, you know, and you could you have a whole history of Picasso's trading since he was uh, alive. Speaking of trading, PitchBook released its US Venture Monitor for Q2 last month. Here are some of the interesting uh, stats and takeaways our producers found and some charts to back them up. The biggest takeaway, obviously, VC exit value has completely collapsed from the major peak in 2021. Q2 VC exit value people selling out Dear uh, their God. shares. Look at that fall off. So here it is, a crazy fall off. Q2 VC exit value was 13.1 billion down 63% quarter over quarter, uh, 35 billion or so in Q1. But this is down 95% year over year from 267 billion in Q2 of 2021. When tons of companies were going public and companies are getting bought, is the lowest exit value since Q4 of 2016, uh, almost six years ago. Makes sense. We're 2016 to 2021 would be the top of the market. Those are companies that were invested in 2008 to 2015, let's say. So, but it is a messy chart. And really, I wonder if you why just Q2 muted, 2019 was so high. It must be it? based on a single transaction. I'm guessing there oh, was some you know, huge you know IPO. That's when all those IPOs Was that the summer of IPOs? Yeah. Uber yeah, IPO. That's Uber. Uber Lyft. Pinterest. Uh, Slack. Lyft. Pinterest. Postmates. It was that first wave uh, in that's right. uh, Q2 2019. You can witness acquired's growth right there in that quarter too. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you look at these, what you're really looking at, I think, is the IPO win IPO window, right? Yeah. And yep. IPO window being closed, IPO window being open, and now the IPO window is closed again, since that is the largest way that VCs still to this date get liquidity. Uh, M and A is like aside. fine, but like you, you, your big winners are you're never going to make your money in M and A. 
they're Unless those are going to be enduring public slack. companies. Yeah, exactly. But they went Slack went public first, right? So there were two opportunities. Yep. Uh, one was forced, and the other one you had the option of uh, to sell. Total deal volume, uh, aka total dollars invested, was sixty two billion, down twenty four percent quarter over quarter. That's quarter over quarter, not year over year. That's down twenty three percent year over year. Uh, eighty one billion a year ago in Q two. So things are coming down significantly. If you take out 2020, the COVID quarter total dollars invested was actually up 73% from Q2 of 2019. That's actually pretty that interesting. Actually makes sense to me because funds raised so much money yes. during 2020 and 2021. Yep. Yeah, you cut me off at the past there. It's so obvious what's happening here is that you just had a lot of fund formation, right? And so it's still being deployed. Total number of deals closed also down 24% uh, quarter over quarter makes sense. 20% down 21% year over year, 3,374 deals were uh, known to have closed. Take out the COVID outlier again, total deals were up 7% from Q2 2019. So if you take out these crazy peaks, you know, you get a decent, you know, you would normalize that curve, I guess. Right. Any other takeaways from those? I'm, I'm curious, what do you, we talked about this a little bit at the top of the show, but what are you, what are you seeing in the private markets, Jason, because I'm seeing like signs of life, like last Ooh. quarter was just flatlined from my perspective. Th there is one more chart in this pitch book yeah. uh, as it relates to this. Oh, see, let me just report. get that out. Yeah. Q2 seed deals down, but not as impacted as later stage. Q2 seed volume yeah. was 3.9 billion down 35% quarter over quarter from 6 billion in Q1. And Q1 was actually a big, <laughs> which is weird. So why would, when the market was crashing, seed deals go way up? I don't understand. Here's my take on this. And David, you asked the question, what are you seeing in the market? At Seed, so at, at PSL Ventures and, and at Pioneer Square Labs, our studio, what we do is we create companies and we invest in pre-seed and seed companies. And so like this is what I'm seeing all day. This chart matches exactly my experience, which is deal count and pace of, like, uh, pace of making new investments is basically identical, but... Mm. Obviously, the dollars per deal are lower and the valuations yes. are lower. Not that much lower. I mean, they're like, call it 30% lower and you're losing the crazy outlier ones that were raising at these ridiculous valuations. But that's only the top, you know, 5% anyway. So the in the sort of meat of the curve, you're getting basically the same number of companies raising rounds at slightly smaller valuations uh, and they're slightly smaller round sizes, but nothing like what was happening in growth. Yeah. I, I would say that's directionally correct. The days of the $25 million pre-product market fit or pre-product launch valuations are gone. Unless it's a seasoned entrepreneur, we're back down to six to $15 million, you know, for uh, an MVP or, you know, a product that's been in market for under a year. That, that Those are the prices I'm seeing. I'm seeing a ton of people who came to me in Q1 and they were raising and we keep a database of all this now we're doing about 70 meetings a week my team um, 60 70 first round meetings a week so we're on quite a pace there and yeah we're just seeing uh, a lot of companies that couldn't raise in Q1 come back to us with new valuation expectations and I would say they are considerably different maybe 50% 
different. Which is a great sign of for that entrepreneur and for that company. Like I, I, I have a number of companies that have grown significantly from their last round, but are opening up their last round. And to me, that is a really positive sign of either one of those cases where you've, your intrinsic value has grown, but you're keeping the valuation the same or where you're coming back at a lower valuation. What that means to me is I actually want to build this thing. This is actually mm. my life's work and is important to me. And wow. I wasn't doing this just because there was free money everywhere. Like I kind of love it. when someone does that. It shows a certain maturity, David, that the founder can say, I recognize the world has changed, to Ben's point, And I am fine with a flat round. Or if I thought, you know, I saw my contemporaries get $25 million rounds, and I wanted to try for 30. I don't care. I just need to get a million dollars in if it's for 10% of my company or 5% or 3%. I just need to get that money in to build. This is going to be a legendary company. Is that that directionally what you're seeing as well, David? Yeah, I I think the other thing that I'm starting to see now was the best performing companies that were invested in or that I knew kind of all of last year, they were just raising, raising, raising constantly. And then the Q1 and definitely in Q2, all of those companies that otherwise would have gone out and been like raising opportunistic ground, or I want to top up, I want to get some extra cash going into this market. They all kind of market checked and just like the answers they got were like, yeah, you may be a great company, but we're just closed for business right now. Like we're just not deploying capital period. And this is kind of like mid stage growth that I'm talking about. Now, a lot of those companies are coming back to market and getting different answers. And I think some of those investors are like, well, I can't just sit here and do nothing. And for these companies that are actually, you know, performing really well, and now we've got some, you know, quarter, quarter and a half of data of performing through this different market environment, maybe I actually do want to own some of this company. And if it's at a price that has not gone up since the last time, or maybe I want to own some more, I'm starting to see that happening again, which I think that's like a really encouraging sign of life to me in the markets where things were just flat before. If that keeps up, that says, okay, 2001, 2002, 2003 is not happening. That that this is like a, the recovery happened much faster than the four year protracted you know, dot com rubble. I have a theory on this, Ben. My theory is yeah. since we now have a group of people in the tech and internet industry that have been through two down cycles, it's kind of like we are uh, war hardened and we know what this is about. It's almost like mm-hmm. if you've been in an emergency situation before, I used to work on an ambulance, like the first time you come to a car crash, holy cow, it is like your adrenaline goes crazy and you start sweating and your heart starts going crazy and you rush up there and you see what the condition of the individuals are. And then the next time your heart goes up, but you're not like debilitated in your fear or anxiety. And then I would work with these, you know, folks and we would pull up to the car crash. They would look at it before we even knew the condition of the patients. They knew what bags to grab. Okay. This is going to be trauma. This is going to be stabilization. Like it would, the, 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 I don't want to say robotic, but you would get into business mode. Yeah. And my first call on the ambulance, uh, I'll never forget it. It was Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, 1990 or 1991. I was 19 or 20 years old. It's literally around my birthday. So I was 20, 21. We get to TJ Bentley's Irish Bar Club, stabbing. It's 1 a.m. Guy stabbed. We go. I kid you not, he's covered in blood on the ground. The guy says to me, the guy on the ambulance that was running the bus, he called it the bus. 
He said, uh, get the mask pants. I said, I'm sorry, the mask pants? He said, get the mask pants. I, okay, I run, I'm digging under the ambulance into the things to pull out what's called the mast pants, M-A-S-T. These are pants that are like a blood pressure cuff. They said, when we trained in them, they said, don't worry, you'll never use these. We're in Brooklyn, you're five minutes away from a hospital. Uh, but these are for in wartime. Call. First call. They said, these are for when you're losing so much blood that we put these on your legs, pump them up to push the blood out of your legs into your uh, you know, organs so you organs. stay alive. Because we need that blood, because we have no blood. I'm like, oh my God. And then the guy says, you know, help me cut this jacket off and we gotta, you know, find the wound and everything. So I take my shears, I go up the side of the guy's jacket. He goes, oh, my members only jacket. <laughs> I remember like it was yesterday. The guy running the ambulance leans down, puts his hand on the guy's shoulder, said, hey fella, you got bigger problems than your members only jacket right now. Because <laughs> he's an Italian guy. Guy's got the hairiest chest you've ever seen. He's wearing a sweater under his sweater. And... I look, and I, when I say I almost fainted, I see the hair bubble up. Oh, bubble no. Up. Oh, the blood no. is pumping out of his chest through his chest hair. It's this big, hairy gorilla of an Italian guy who is concerned about his members only jacket, which, by the way, is covered in blood. That was my first call. And the level, what I remember from this is just how calm everybody was, except for me. That's what I'm seeing now. All the venture folks are like, yep, we've been here. This is how it's going to happen. Here's your Sequoia deck. RIP good times. Here's what you have to do. Here's David Sachs. Let me go over the Sequoia deck. It's Here's like my everyone's punch playing ups. their part in a play that they know sort of they've rehearsed. It's just like, hey, we're all pros at this. And we just literally, I went through everybody in my portfolio. I said, okay, what's your burn? You're not going to raise your next round at, the, at a, an up round. You your burn's too high, your revenue's too low, you're doing four different business models. What's your one business model? If you could only do Frank Slootman one thing for the next year, which would it be? Let's do that. Uh, cut everybody else. And they're like, okay, I'll do a riff 10%. I'm like, riff 30, 40, 50% is what you need to be doing. Because if you're cutting these three other projects, you don't need those people. Focus on one project, get this burn from 150 down to 50. Now it's not 2 million to fund this company for a year. You know, if you're only burning 50 a month, it's 600. You can just go to your existing investors and they'll give you the money and you'll look more mature. And my God, so many people in the portfolio just did it because they were <laughs> hearing it from all angles. They were hearing it on your pod, my pod, all in this week in startups from Sequoia, from their venture companies. That's my theory of why this is, we're processing this so fast. Interestingly, so that than last time too. Oh, like totally. Oh, you no, know, there yeah. was no all. I mean, this, there was a this week in startups last time, but you weren't nearly as big Barely. as you are now. There wasn't. I wasn't you know, an investor. Yeah, there wasn't the, the all in Sequoia. You remember the RIP Good Times? That was a secret oh. meeting. They were so pissed that it got out, and now yeah. they just release it on Medium. Like, yeah. like here you go. It's a much yeah, there's so world. much more public knowledge. I will say, there's a baby bathwater situation here too, though, where the everyone so quickly jumped to like cut burn layoffs that like yeah. a lot of companies that were not negatively impacted at all in this environment and had lots of capital or were at or near profitability or had a long runway like as a board member and an investor with with psl i had to go talk to some of our companies and be like hey this doesn't apply to you like ah. you're still in go <laughs> mode i mean you're not like don't do anything yeah. like uh, assuming the environment hasn't changed because it has changed but like do not do layoffs do not slow down keep leaning in yeah uh, that is hard to do when everybody around you has made the riff <laughs> and you're like, yeah. 
wait, why am I different? It's like, because you're profitable? I don't know. Uh, but you know what? Even those riffs, if they're just 10%, if you just look at them as a reorg, hey, we just got rid of the weakest people in the company. We got rid of the redundancies, you know, and we, we're making different investments now. I don't worry about that as much as the person who's just like, yeah, you know, we're going 100 miles an hour towards a brick wall, but you know, somebody's going to take those bricks down for us. It's like, yeah, there's nobody. You're just going right into that wall. I talked to so many founders and executives during COVID after the like April, May 2020 riffs that were like, yeah, we needed to do that. And our, our VCs told us to do that. But also like, God, there, there were 5% of the company that shouldn't have been here anyway. So, you know, always, yeah, always, always. Yeah. That is a steady state. And once you cut those 5%, then you're looking, okay, so let's say you had 100 people and you get rid of five. Everybody's like, yeah, thank God. Now you're down to 95 people. You know what happens? People are like, what about those four? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. when you're the CEO, people are like, you know, we got rid of those five. But frankly, you know, the 96th person compared to this person that you like, for whatever reason, they're a good culture person, they're not doing anything and they're overpaid. We could hire two people for the sales team for what that person's getting in business development who doesn't even show up for work and he's in Italy the whole time. No offense. You know, to anybody in Italy right <laughs> that now. sounds like Jamath. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> not, sorry, uh, he's not in business development. I mean, he's <laughs> that's right. he is, but. Yeah, but that's when the, you know, like, um, Amazon caught so much flack for this for so long. Remember that New York Times article about the workplace culture there and whatnot? But yeah. like. 2015. That yeah, was ridiculous, yeah. that story. That was ridiculous. But yeah, they do the stack ranking and then like the target is, you know, 10% attrition a year. I don't know if what, I'm sure that's not the official policy anymore, but like. Jack Welch. originally thing. a Jack Welch thing. Yeah. And a college thing. Competitive colleges did that, right? Stack rank your yeah. grades. I think that's where it came I mean, from. Makes sense. I don't know if you guys watched Masayoshi-san's presentation. I covered it yesterday oh, yes. on the show. Did you actually watch the video? No, I haven't yet. Oh. I've read all like a, the transcript and a bunch oh. of quotes and stuff. But the, you, you the watched video, the video? I watched the whole video Ooh, I on know. double speed. And then I went back and I've, I've watched another half of it again. Just some like great spo spots. It is mm, chef's kiss in terms of like one of the greatest investors of all time reflecting after like losing a battle and he literally you know evokes like shogun era battles to describe what he's going through having to retreat twice and he literally said when we were turning out big profits i became somewhat delirious and looking back at myself now i am quite embarrassed and remorseful of course translated but yes i don't buy it i think it's <laughs> ridiculous i think he only i think there was only one leak in the game you know, when you look up this chart, I'll pull up the chart here for people who are not watching, we had a chart of their net income quarterly. And I think this is like the value of all their investments, right? And this is in Japanese yen. And you see the last two quarters, like it just got crushed. But uh, oh, no, they had the the better chart of this is the there was a line chart, Nick, if you can where pull it, it crashes out, down to zero, where the, it crashes uh, down to like basically zero. Yeah. It's their total accumulated returns. You know, when you look at those returns, what would have happened if his philosophy, David was, I'm going to sell when our winners are up 30 40%, I'm going to sell 10%. And then when we go up another 30 40%, I'm going to sell another 10%. This is the chart. It's incredible. Oh, uh, we see the massive done. gains. Yeah. Did you do yeah. this with Robinhood at IPO? I didn't. This is uh, a regret for me. I, I held Robinhood. And if I had paired, I would have, uh, you know, greatly increased uh, the returns for my first fund. I did do this. I did pair Uber. I did pair some other names that I can't talk mm -hmm. about. And so my philosophy has always been when I hit that like 25, 50, 100x, if an opportunity for secondary emerges, sure, I'll trim our position. And here's the thing. If you sell 10 or 20%, you're not gonna have regret. There was a famous early investor in Uber. Um, I don't know if it ever became public. If you guys heard of it, you can feel free to say it. I'm not gonna say the name. 
Um, when Uber was hitting a $4 billion valuation, they were an early investor, they started clearing their position, they cleared, I think, more mm -hmm. than half of their position at 4 billion. Now, we were in at 4 million, remember 5 million. So this Oof. seemed like a genius thing to do. And Travis told everybody don't sell. I don't want anybody selling. He was very clear with us. And he he had a thousand I don't say he how, how could you not want to say it? well, there was a little dilution that occurred. So maybe it was more like 500. But anyway, yep. it's a very tough thing. Now, I didn't sell at that point. I think I sold my first shares at 30 or 40 billion. <sighs> But Travis, I talked to Travis. He said, don't sell. Do not sell. We're friends. Don't sell. <laughs> and I said, you know, I got this thing. Like, you know, and he said, Jake out. Don't sell. I said, okay, I won't sell. Went home to the wife. No summer house. We'll wait on the summer house. But, We're going to wait. You know, <laughs> no sell. We're going to wait. Maybe we get a bigger summer house. You know, maybe instead of a timeshare, we get the whole thing. Anyway. You got that sold. nice wood behind you there. Exactly. Like <laughs> you guys ski. You got to come out. We'll do a live episode. <laughs> Three months later. There was a $10 million round. And man, that person's LPs was like, what? Are you not in communication with the founder? Like, I mean, people were happy to get a huge return, but this is like one of the great mistakes. I mean, this is up there with, I, is it true that Sequoia sold their Apple stake at the IPO? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, like, was, that was yeah, the greatest That was a mistake. big one, right? Well, I think that, the, you know, the thing is though with Masa and like, like he is, I genuinely do believe people can change, but people only change when they want to change and like Moss, mm. like we've seen this behavior so many times and it's what works for him like because he's lived this exact same thing 20 years yes. ago and he came out of it with alibaba and mm. like and and not selling in that and that was you know like that mm. washed away everything else so like i gotta imagine he's thinking the same thing here did you see the second quote that uh preet put in the acquired slack this morning david oh no it's so the second one is now, this is from Masa, now seems like the perfect time to invest when the stock market is down so much, and I have the urge to do so, but if I act on it, we could suffer a blow that would be irreversible, and that is unacceptable. And wow. you can feel wow. his- Does he like, actually believe that, or does he feel like he has to say I don't know. That, I feel like you can feel the wistfulness. Like, he wants to be in go mode, oh, but yeah. he also doesn't yeah. want to run SoftBank into the ground. And so that is, that's like the classic- that's the reason this is so much harder than it, it than it sounds to buy the dip or, you know, to, to the yeah. exact opposite, to not go nuts on the way up when it seems to be working. This is a great observation, Ben. You need to have dry powder for these moments in time. And if you went all in, you got no chips. You can't play the next tournament. You got to sit it out. And he's so wounded right now that he doesn't want to have to retreat a third or fourth time. Uh, and then people like us are like, hmm. Equity seem low, maybe I'll start placing some bets. And here we are. And there was another really great quote where he was like, listen, it was very bubbly times that we were investing in. And I was like, not exactly accurate. We created a bubble based on our investments. Is <laughs> you actually, created a bubble. <laughs> yeah, like literally. So in terms of awareness, like I think Masa has to understand, like when you take WeWork, I think from 10 to 44 billion, if, was that the jump that he made? Like you created that bubble. He created the bubble with Uber, which wasn't that bad, but you know, he gave them the extra 10 billion at the end there. It wasn't a WeWork situation by any no, means. No, it wasn't. I mean, that would have, he would have to have valued it at like uh, 200 billion for that to happen, which there were people who were pushing him, telling him he wasn't giving us a big enough premium. Wow. Yeah, they were. People were like, this is undervalued. <laughs> They're public <laughs> wow. about it. Wow. You know, and, and that's a price that is, I think, the $60 billion price is, uh, maybe Uber's right at around 60 billion right now. Uh, any other notes from his presentation that you uh, gleaned from it or any thoughts on his impact on the industry? Uh, it's, I mean, it's interesting that they're fully out of Uber now. They fully liquidated that position. 
Yeah. That's what caused the downward pressure, by the way. Somebody had whispered right. that to me. Like, hey, what's going on with Uber? Why does why does it not go up when everybody says, like all the analysts are saying it's a $40, a $45 stock again, a $60 stock. They're putting all these great price targets on it. And it was down and it at keeps 22. Going down. 19, I, mean, he, I think, is where it bounced to. Um, wow. Not that I was looking four times a day, but uh, <laughs> I think that was all because he was clearing his position and it had to get absorbed. A large That's been position. one of the big lessons for me of the past, both on the up and down in the past few years, is that like these things are markets. You know, like you can do all the fundamental analysis you want, but selling pressure and buying pressure is what moves mm. stock prices. It really yep. does. And then having dry powder gives you the ability to take advantage of those discrepancies, right? Yep. So you know, when I fully deploy the J Cal port, the J trading portfolio, I'm, I might be not, I might be like, oh, Spotify's on sale. It's trading at three times sales, right? If let's say it crashes 50% from here, you know, Ben and I would be like, oh, we should buy a little more dollar cost average it to a 4.5 sales, right? But if there's some mm -hmm. big hedge fund that's liquidating their position over the next few weeks after you buy it, it's certainly not yeah. going up, even if intrinsic value is going up and earnings call mm -hmm. is good and all that stuff. That at the end of the day, the intrinsic value of the company and, and your own analysis informs what you believe this company is worth in the long run. And it mm -hmm. will do crazy shit in the meantime. I mean, it's the mm -hmm. Warren Buffett quote. It is the, yeah. in the long run, the stock market is a weighing machine. And in the short yep. term, it is a voting machine. And right now, Masa has been voting Uber down, 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 down. And then you have right. to make your own decision on well, what, it's, I, what the, I think the weight the of it is. nuance that I've kind of like come to in the last couple of years. It's not so much that it's a voting machine. It's, well, votes get cast, but that doesn't necessarily reflect people's thoughts or opinions. Like SoftBank, like Maza had to be liquidating. He knew this quarter was coming. He had no choice. Yeah, he would have he held had Uber no if choice. he had a choice, yeah. I think. Right. And like a lot of hedge funds get uh, find themselves in similar positions. Like they actually believe in the position, but for whatever reason, they're facing redemptions or, you know, something's happening. End There's of a the short year, squeeze, tax like, issues, you know, whatever. Yep. upset LPs, which is all these... That's why Sequoia liquidated Apple at IPO. It was a tax-related yeah, thing LP. where they, they was needed tax to distribute. For LPs. Yep. Oh, God, so brutal. Well, I mean, we're famous on the All In Podcast for saying, ride your winners. And somebody was like, oh, so you should ride your winners into the ground. And I was like, well, you know, my position has always been sell some idiot insurance and then ride, if it's truly a winning company, ride it from there. So you have, you've locked in some level of returns and then you're playing with the house's money, hopefully. And that's, I'm sticking with that as my guiding principle. And then in terms of public markets, you know, it, it is something I'm learning, which is a lot of times these prices, because people can vote every day, every second of every day, crypto, you can vote every second of every day, you know, public markets, yep. you can vote most seconds of most days. Um, because you have that vibrancy in the market, that liquidity in the market, it could get disconnected from reality. And emotion can take over in a way that it doesn't in private companies. In private companies, you're locked mm -hmm. up. You know, the CEO may not let you sell. You might not have a buyer. You're not sitting there looking at the price every day. And that's a feature, not a bug. I like that feature. And I'm trying to have that feature discipline. Like right after I bought this Warner great. Brothers Disney, Zaslav had his big, you know, meeting about what his plans were. And I thought this is like... Warner Bros. Discovery, sorry, not Disney. Um, that, now, that, that will happen would in be 10 a years. Deal. That would be a deal. <laughs> That's an emergency. Lena, I don't know if that. I don't know if Lena Khan's going to do that. I think Lena Khan right now <laughs> is filing so they they can't buy the X Men. She's she's putting in an, an action against <laughs> them them having Spider Man back in the Avengers. Back that's how it. that's how cynical uh, and and bitter she is. <laughs> that would be great if she blocked a superhero character for coming back oh, to Marvel. That'd be so great. <laughs>
Uh, I feel so Spider Man is bringing too much value to the question, MCU. question, though, you asked uh, a few minutes ago, and it was in yeah. the, in the um, outline for today. What do we think about the impact of SoftBank and Masa? Uh, yeah. over the past few years i think i i think it's good like i think i'm glad it happened because i think masa instigated all of this like if masa hadn't raised the vision fund and started doing all this i don't think that you know tigers and kotus would exist but it would it wouldn't be the same and perhaps more importantly though like I don't think the Sequoia fund would exist. I don't think Sequoia would have their, you know, $12 billion fund. And like, yeah, like the, the counterside of this argument is like, wow, now there's just way too much capital in the ecosystem. But I do think entrepreneurs will use this capital in good ways. And there is a whole, there's not, you know, Benchmark is the one firm that that didn't change through all this. But or all the other firms. Partners. Sorry, Union yeah, Square Ventures. Union yeah. Square Ventures. Yeah. yeah. You, Stuck you, their right. USB, Benchmark. They didn't change, and they may be they may be right in the long run, but um, but I think it's probably a good thing for the ecosystem that Sequoia has a twelve billion dollar fund now. I think so too. You know, that is one of the things that kept happening. Upfront Ventures, I think Mark Seuss is trying to keep his funds at a reasonable size. One of the things that happened was Bill Gurley, uh, Sequoia, to a lesser extent, um, started getting I don't want to say bullied, but you know they would put all this time into a company, and then they get to year seven. And Masayoshi-san comes in. Masayoshi-san thank you for all this work. In. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Now I'm going to cause, you know, uh, a big upheaval on the board. I'm going to put tons of money in here. In some cases, it's great. In some cases, it's a problem. You know, in Uber, it was great. In WeWork, it was problematic. And um, DoorDash know, the, the, was great. DoorDash was great. I mean, the same thing happened with um, Yuri Milner before or in between Masa. So Yuri Milner took Masa's book, you know, and, and kind of innovated on that with uh also with, with his bet on facebook right and with dst so i i do agree that it net net is a great thing i think i gotta reach out to masa because i'm doing so much early stage i think he can get his he can wet his beak and get his itch scratched if he were to oh. give me like that's right he says he wants 300 million dollars to deploy an early stage you guys should have masa as a bestie guesty oh it'd be incredible he's the best i, I had lunch with masa twice one-on-one -on -one. I've had two one-on-one -on -one lunches with Moss. I got to reach out to him when I go to Japan for skiing oh. at Hokkaido. Would he need an interpreter to? Uh, no, probably. I spoke no, to him no, without. An, I spoke to him without. But to an come interpreter. on a pod. Good question. I don't know. I think when he gives the soft. No, I don't think so. I think he would just talk. Yeah, but maybe. Hmm. Quickly, Amazon is searching for a fourth pillar. I've been buying some Amazon because, my lord, uh, I think they're having a heck of a year. I love the one medical acquisition. I love the iRobot acquisition. I love what they're doing with Amazon Video. You, you love Cloud them being enormously free cash flow negative for the first time in history. Have you, uh, have you looked at their free cash flow chart? It is no. like, all right, I'm going to, while you're talking, I got to pull this up and producer Nick can, can put it in. $23 billion less free cash flow year <laughs> over year. Thank you too. For the record, I love it too. And it's for all the right reasons, but uh, it, it like, it's very interesting to talk about like it, Amazon's doing so well. And then look at this free cash flow chart and be like, holy God. So where did all that money go? Distribution centers, data Got centers. Yep. Got it. So they're investing in hardcore infrastructure that creates a massive moat. Yep. Yes. I'm here for it. <laughs> I'm Sounds definitely good to me. here for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or you could have paid taxes. Right. I like it. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of commentators saying like Amazon is the only company in the world that investors trust enough to have to be $23 billion less cash flow than last year and have a, like a positive earnings report. Yeah. The stock goes up. 
Right. Totally. AWS is a juggernaut. Prime is a juggernaut. What else? And the advertising business is now a juggernaut. Oh, the advertising business is like, it's like a close Pure to profit. $50 billion revenue Pure run profit. rate. Oh man, the story. I can't wait. We're hopefully spoil it. within David, a week. Spoil it. Just do okay, it. Okay, I'll just spoil it. I'll just spoil it. The spoil uh, it. so we're dropping a huge episode. Going to be multiple episodes on Amazon, mm, but the first one's coming episode out very ever. soon. Yeah. Wow, we recorded for six and a half hours. <laughs> uh, episode won't six be that long. Six and a half hours, my lord! You geeked out. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. So, if you were, what are you most impressed with today? Today, as of today, what is the most impressive for you? And then. What do you think will be the most important 10 years from now? Hmm. So prime advertising cloud retail or the commerce business. Hmm. I guess those are four different. I guess you could say prime and the retail the, business the are two the same. I'm most impressed with equally today okay. uh, are the back end one and one a got it back end infrastructure and all of the moats around it for both the retail business and AWS. Like, Got it. Amazon owns 96 airplanes. Name me another company <laughs> that owns 96 747s. Uh, well, now they're doing 737. They didn't buy FedEx. They didn't buy, they didn't buy FedEx. They didn't buy UPS. They didn't want to deal with LenaCon and antitrust. Yep. So they're like, yeah, we'll just buy our own planes and we'll buy our own trucks and cars. Not to mention, it's nice to outsource. Like, it's a genius move not owning UPS because it basically right. means that they don't have to carry that truckload mm -hmm. the whole year when they don't need it. But then mm -hmm. at the holidays, when they do need a little bit yeah. more capacity, they can ramp them up yeah. without it being on their balance sheet. Yep. They have 200,000 trucks. <laughs> it's great. Like, that's unreal. Uh, just and, starting. Um, so just which start, is your yeah. one, which is your 1A then? Which infrastructure are you more impressed by? Today actually, and then we, we don't yet have the, um, this is going to be our next episode on Amazon, but I think I will end up being more impressed with the infrastructure for AWS, uh, wow. just simply because like it is the internet and like yeah. a few months ago, I think it's maybe the past quarter earnings. People were like, Ooh, AWS growth, you know, it's very impressive, but it's slower than Azure and, and Google. And I was like, yeah, because it's, it's like six times the size of Azure. It's, yeah, it's not six, number. but like, you know, it's, it's huge numbers and it's still growing almost as fast. Like, and that's like the CapEx, the infrastructure that goes into that, into literally powering the internet, like is crazy. Here's what happened. So in 2014, uh, Jeff Bezos published in the letter this quote where he said, I believe that AWS is market size unconstrained. I think AWS was doing like, five-ish billion in revenue in, in revenue at that point david do you know what it is today or, or uh, 76 today? 76, 76 billion today the entire cloud as a market that if you look at amazon google and microsoft is a 120 billion dollar market that didn't exist 10 years Crazy. ago 15 years ago growing over 30 percent just between those three companies so amazon because they were before microsoft and google in this really pioneering it by three four five years they basically discovered a new public utility mm -hmm. and were able to have it inside of their for-profit corporation and have unbelievably good margins on it. Like, Oh, there's this amazing quote from Eric Schmidt in the everything store. This is so good. <laughs> Eric Schmidt, of course, the former CEO of Google. He's like the book guys figured out technology <laughs> yeah. and then ran circles. He didn't say this, but ran circles around Google for years. It is pretty crazy that Microsoft and Google didn't win this. If I told you 20 right? years ago who would own cloud computing, rank Amazon, the bookstore, <laughs> Microsoft, you know, and Google, you'd be like, well, 
Yeah, Microsoft's the incumbent, but Google's, I'd probably say Google, then Microsoft, then Amazon, right? Like that would be your running order. Uh, of no, the pillars, the book, uh, Ben, what, what, what are your one and two for the pillars today and tomorrow? Advertising is a juggernaut at this point. It's a $40 billion business on its own. That's 100% mm. margin. But I think it, it's hard for me to like uh, have adoration for it because I feel like any business of sufficient scale with consumer traffic can eventually bolt on a 100% margin for free advertising business. And so it's like great that they discovered it and found a way to work it in, but you sort of should have expected them to, to, to be able to figure that out. To me, AWS was a market that they invented and so was the Amazon.com retail business. I'm most impressed by AWS because very few companies invent a second multi-hundred billion dollar market ever. Like, companies don't do that. They have their initial insight, and most companies die with that initial insight, but very few turn that initial insight into a multi-billion dollar opportunity for customers and shareholders. Amazon did that twice. And like the, the GOAT list for that is like Apple with the iPhone, Microsoft figuring out Office after Windows or Windows after DOS. Like the, these are the companies that have managed to do it just a few times. It's a very short list. So to me, AWS is the really impressive thing that they were able to figure out that next thing that late in the company's life. I mean, this started over 10 years after the company was founded. Yeah, I'm going to go AWS, then the ad business. Uh, I think they could take the retail business and i don't know if you saw they are reportedly deprecating amazon basics and the house brands uh mm -hmm. this seems very wise <laughs> to me in terms of, <laughs> because of antitrust okay yeah. so lena khan's like oh you know there's one vector here you know you're making your own cables and you're reportedly studying everybody so like okay yeah no more amazon basics then yeah anchor you got the business it's yours oh and by the way there's 10 other people competing with you and now to win You've got to give us your advertising. Yeah, dollars. like we're so going to win I, one way or another. Heads I tails. Exactly. Heads I win. Tails you lose. Can I tell? Can I tell one quick little thing that like almost okay. nobody knows about Amazon, the advertising business. Oh yeah. So, Bezos was a seed investor in Google, and there's a whole mm -hmm. crazy story sure. behind it. But this yep. is well, like he got what was going on and why yep. Google eviscerated eBay and everything like before yep. anybody. And that, among a bunch of things, led to building the advertising business. It's extremely likely that Jeff Be Bezos made a billion dollars of financial return on his Google investment, or or potentially a lot more, depending on when he sold. But like, Jeff would have been a billionaire if Amazon went to zero just from the Google investment. That takes the edge off, doesn't it, boys? <laughs> All right, listen. Uh, I, so I'm going with uh, the ad business as my number two. But I do like One Medical, and I, I do like the robotics business. Uh, they're just firing on all cylinders. That's why I J-traded it. All right, listen. And, and just to, we, we, we've got the, the image. So Nick, if you want to put that up, this is just how much Amazon <laughs> has been investing the last few quarters. I mean, you can call this a, a, a misforecast on demand. You could be like, wow, they really screwed up, and they're overbuilding, and they were assuming COVID would run forever. But I don't know. Th this, to me, looks like moat. It's moat, yeah. I mean, it's not like they can't stop buying the stuff because I did see that they started selling. They stopped work on six different tower buildings where they're like, build the outside, don't do the inside, we'll figure it out later. And then uh, I had some companies that were looking for warehouse space and they're like, Amazon bought everything. They're like, oh, now Amazon's selling a bunch of stuff. So there is something going well, on where they might have pumped the brakes. They're keeping yeah. the ownership, but I think they're leasing it. And I wouldn't be surprised three, four years from now if they're like, yeah, we're taking that back. 
Well, yeah, very good, right? So I think if you, even if you buy too much infrastructure, when you've got a business like this, it allows you because you have the dry powder to make a couple of mistakes on the margin, but you know, uh, hold a lot of real estate or hold a lot of optionality. Everybody follow Ben. He's Gilbert, G I L B E R T on the Twitter. Everybody follow David D J R O S E N T. Do a search for acquired, uh, subscribe. They do a great job over there. Uh, a lot of good like deep features about companies. I love listening to them. If you uh, want to start a company or be CEO of one of the great Pioneer Square Labs companies, go uh, just DM Gilbert. He's looking for CEOs and management teams. And if you got a startup, Kindergarten Ventures, maybe they put in 25, 50, 100K and you get David and his big brain working on your startup. Thanks, boys. Jason, David and dollars. That's true. Dave and I are looking at a deal together right now. Kindergarten Ventures and, and PSL Ventures may make oh, invest here. So loop me in. Loop me All in. Right. Let's do All it. Right. We'll get, we'll, I don't want to say a three-way. I don't want anybody in the audience to get sick. But and Jason, get, what's, yeah, what's, know, what's, what's your call to action? What, where, where should uh, yeah. what's interesting for folks to reach out to you? I know that if they listen to the show, they know. Oh but. right. Oh we. Oh you got yeah. So uh, my call to action: Jason at Calicanus.com for life. I'm looking for companies with 10k in revenue a month uh, and that have great CEOs and have a couple of customers and uh, you know, uh, then put a 500k to $3 million into the company, help you grow it. That's it. You can listen to this week in startups, the end. I'm Jason on Twitter. I'm Jason on Instagram and uh, jtrading.com. That is some valuable real estate on Instagram. Yeah, sorry to Jason, Jason Statham. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but what's the what's the highest dollar amount you've ever gotten offered for one of your handles you know it's usually like some influencer kids and they'll offer 50k or 100k or something and i'm like you obviously have not done any research like <laughs> you understand like how impressive it is to somebody in the tech industry when you tell them your instagram or your twitter is jason like it's doesn't really get much better than that so <laughs> sorry <laughs> i can't help you <laughs> all right everybody we'll see you next time bye bye